Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking about the church and some of the expectations I have developed about what the church should be or how the church should be. Expectations that honestly grew from my largely positive experience growing up in healthy churches as a kid. In my book, in chapter 7, I write about how I handled it once I got older and became exposed to much of the harm the church has done throughout history and in the lives of many of my friends. And to be honest, I had my own rather difficult experience in a church when I was in my mid-20s. And in many ways, I've struggled to recover from that experience ever since. And I'm really glad to have Caitlin Beatty join me for this conversation. Caitlin is the editorial director of Brazos Press and the author of the book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. She is co-host of the podcast Saved by the City and writes at the Beatty Beat. And that's her substack, which you should definitely subscribe to. She's a Midwestern native and she lives in Brooklyn, New York now. I'm really glad to have her on. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's great to talk to you today. Yeah, likewise. I'm I'm grateful we get to have this conversation. Um, I should say, too, um, happy belated birthday. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I feel like had I known that you and I shared a birth year, which we don't mm. have to disclose in this conversation, yeah. um, but had I known that I would have totally ditched the conversation about the church and said, let's just talk about what it's like to be geriatric millennials, like elder millennials. You know, you you mentioned that we shared a birth year on Twitter. I was like, yeah, I, I felt that I felt an elder millennial vibe vibe from you. So. Yeah, it is. I feel like I've, I've heard us referred to as zennials, which I really appreciate. Cause it's like. <laughs> Not like some aspects of, of Gen X and not fully millennials, or I've heard it's called the Oregon Trail generation because of that computer <laughs> game. But yeah, it, it was, it's kind of a, I don't know. I feel like 19, well, I shouldn't say the year, but 19 people, something, 19 <laughs> <safe>. something. <laughs> 
80s something. People uh-huh. born during that that year. It's like, I don't know, like Columbine happened the year I entered high school. Uh-huh. 9-11 happened my senior year. A bunch of my friends yep. enlisted. Hit yep. the job market the year that the financial crisis was at its uh-huh. worst. Like, I feel like all the news events were like uniquely designed to psychologically subvert our rites of passage. I don't know. Mm. I, mm. I mean, other generations have had it tough too. So I'm not, I'm not trying to complain <laughs> here. I'm just saying there's yeah. a lot to unpack. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But we won't, we could spend time talking about that, but kind of in that vein, I mm. guess I want to talk to you about a little bit um, about what it was like growing up in the church for you. I sometimes say I mm-hmm. have evangelical millennial survivor's guilt because I was mm-hmm. kind of spared some of the yeah. most significant dysfunctions yeah. um, and excesses from that time period. And I kind of get the sense that you, yeah. from your writings, you felt that way too. So tell us a little bit yeah. about what it was like for you growing up in the church. Yeah, I I, I certainly resonate with that. And I know we'll, we'll talk about deconstruction mm-hmm. and evangelicalism and how I am very sympathetic to that conversation and and very interested in that trend mm-hmm. and also don't necessarily resonate with that I think primarily because overall I had a positive experience mm-hmm. growing up in a United Methodist Church in Ohio um which is where I'm from um it was a seeker sensitive United Methodist mm-hmm. church it was a mega church hopeful. I don't think we ever technically got there, but certainly the style of music, style of preaching, the emphasis on you know, drawing the unchurched, making church a place of welcome and comfort, the mm. youth group culture, like it had all the harm- hallmarks of mm. kind of non-denominational mega church culture. Um, and yeah, my parents and I all would say that we had a born again experience because of our connection mm-hmm. to that church. I had a young woman as a youth pastor mm-hmm. who later went on to seminary and became, she is currently a pastor of a large Wesleyan church in Michigan. So the, the gender stuff, I mean, yeah. we had purity culture and that was super weird. Yeah. But I didn't have the patriarchal. Mm-hmm elements. I didn't have the Southern Baptist elements. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, I felt a little bit, yeah, shielded from some of the things that we are now talking about when we talk about deconstruction and the evangelical movement. Um, yeah, so I, I look back on that experience sometimes with like a wince or a cringe, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Acquire the Fire. That was a huge youth conference yeah. um, in Indiana that I went to twice. And heard a lot about the atheists and the liberals and there's a lot of that the broader evangelical subculture of the time that i think we should certainly kind of unpack and look at the the wreckage of yeah but i felt a, a little bit i i felt like i was shielded from a, from a lot of that in a more direct way yeah but i guess some of your exposure to the dysfunction began um, well, I don't want to say for you when it began, but you were certainly writing about it in your career as a writer, journalist, uh, working for Christian media publications. You mm-hmm. began kind of writing about what was happening in evangelicalism and eventually led you to write this book, Celebrities for Jesus. Tell us what mm-hmm. kind of um, what what made you feel like you needed to write that book? What was the thing that really started that for you? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So my my first job out of college was at Christianity Today magazine, uh, self-identified evangelical flagship Mm -hmm. publication. And I ended up being there for almost a decade. So Mm. spent a fair amount of time at CT and, you know, CT is journalist a journalistic publication so it reports on news and trends in the American and global church and in the last several years that I was on staff we received multiple tips and allegations uh involving you know people whose best-selling books were in our family's home growing up um, mm-hmm. people with international name recognition um who were being accused of all sorts of things, Um, everything from financial impropriety to abuse to sexual harassment to kind of being jerks, (laughs) (laughs) like narcissistic tendencies. Um, And it just was, I mean, you, you, you start to hear some of those allegations and of course now they feel so familiar to us and like nothing surprises us. But at the time, Certainly when, for example, our staff first heard allegations against Bill Hybels back in 2014, so several years before the story was actually reported on, it was jarring. It was alarming. And you just start to see so many headlines and think, okay, what is in the water here? This is not – this is, of course, about one particular person's pathologies Mm – sinful, whatever kind of framework you want to use to explain what's going on with them as a person. But this also has to be systemic and cultural because these things don't happen without a system of people um, and embedded norms and postures and attitudes over time that kind of allow people to to abuse their celebrity power. So Mm -hmm. I really started, as I dug more into those stories, started to sense that celebrity itself Mm. was a kind of um, charismatic power that many evangelicals are attracted to and yet has dramatic bad consequences for the person who is the celebrity, for a church community, for the movement, for the fans, for how we even think about discipleship and formation. Mm. So I... I I wrote Celebrities for Jesus very much out of love for the church. Mm, yeah. I think I didn't just want to create a litany of like, here are all the ways that you know, evangelical men are behaving badly, mm-hmm. which could be the subtitle if I'm feeling <laughs> cynical. Uh, I I really wanted to write it to say, let's step back and look at what's going on here so that all of us can participate in healthier spiritual communities. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's a little risky in some ways to defend the church right now. And, and I, I wrote a, I wrote a chapter about, you know, kind of my expectations of church, um, that I grew up with and, um, you know, had a pretty like healthy childhood in terms of my interaction with the church. Once I got into my mid twenties, uh, had some pretty serious, um, situations of, spiritual and emotional abuse that happened in, in church. I was at very, really long time ago, but it, it, it stayed with me. And I, I don't, I don't speak that publicly about that because it's, there are a lot of people involved in that story and it's, it's, it's not just my story to tell, but I, I left kind of 
feeling like I was at a crossroads of like, you can either choose to remain part of this institution or you can walk away. And I actually fully, fully understand why people walk away because it's been some of that abuse has been so serious and so significant. And so there is a part of me that gets a little bit nervous when I write in defense of the church, when I kind of make a, a plea for people to, I don't know, consider whether or not they might remain. And I think you do a really, really beautiful job of talking about that. So you, um, Besides your wonderful book, Celebrities for Jesus, everyone who's listening should subscribe to the Beatty Beat, um, Caitlin's newsletter. It's, I don't know, it's, it's relevant. It's insightful. It's witty. It's, it's one of my favorite newsletters that goes out. But in it, you recently, um, wrote one that was, uh, entitled, uh, Why I Still Go to Church. And I just thought it was a lovely, gentle case for how remaining in the church has been helpful and healthy for you. Um, And in it, you write, there are all sorts of smug assumptions about Christians who don't attend church, like they want to sin, they're lazy, they're just joining the ex-evangelical deconstruction trend, and I have no interest in joining that cacophonous choir. But you do talk about how church has been helpful for you. So maybe share with us, how do you think churchgoers might extend more compassion to the people who are deconstructing their faith or find it difficult to enter church spaces? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for reading The Beatty Beat. I literally have no idea what I'm doing most weeks, but (laughs) some people apparently find it helpful. Um, Yeah, I I obviously what comes through in that piece is that I, I write as someone who in general has had positive experiences in the church. And I think most most centrally what that has meant is that for whatever reason, I have found myself in churches where the leaders um, act like Jesus, mm-hmm. for you know, who who demonstrate Christ-like care, integrity, humility, where what they are preaching and how they actually interact with people in the church is integrated, mm-hmm. and that has made a really big difference. And I think this is this is not true of all people who would say they're deconstructing or who would say, you know, I can't, I cannot step inside a church right now. But when you start to listen to their stories, which mm-hmm. obviously I think is very important yeah. as people, is is to um, take people on their own terms, mm-hmm. you know, and to believe that the to give people the benefit of the doubt that the way yeah. they are narrating the story and what happened to them is, is true according to what they experienced in their mm-hmm. own person. <laughs> yeah. So starting from a posture of tell me more, I want to listen, help me understand. I'm just listening. I don't have, I don't have to give you an answer. I don't have to convince you to come back, you know? Mm. So starting from that place of giving people the benefit of the doubt and wanting to listen, when you do start to listen to a lot of evangelical deconstruction stories, it so much comes down to how people were treated within the body of Christ, how people were treated in a specific church community. It's you know, I know that there are theological questions or questions around ethics, and you know, does is you know, traditional Christian teaching unhelpful or unhealthy? There's all of those more 
theoretical or idea oriented questions or mm-hmm. doubts about Christian faith, but I I have seen that the deconstruction trend, quote unquote, isn't ultimately about ideas, it's about people and how mm-hmm. people were treated. And so for people like me who are still inside a church and want to belong to the church as an institution, it's hearing those stories is such a humbling reminder to step back and say, where have we gotten it wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, how have we failed to embody the love of Christ among people in our midst? Mm -hmm. Have we used spiritual teaching to seek control other over other people Mm. have we used this to draw a clear line of like you're in or you're out creating an in-group out group Mm -hmm. dynamic in our church i just i think all of this conversation is an opportunity to step back and humbly reflect and repent Mm. um so that so that people can heal you know so that Mm. the church actually lives up to the name of the person of Christ that it professes. Yeah. Gosh, we love, I think what's so hard is we love simple, straightforward narratives. Like we love to, to categorize things to say either the church is fully harmful and has been from the beginning, or, you know, there are a number of people that pop up on my Twitter that are just like, you know, feel like they need to defend the church. The church is holy good. The church is the bride of Christ. How dare you, you know, tear down ministers of the gospel, that whole thing. When the reality is somewhere in the middle or a little bit of both that, that there are really, really healthy, thriving, beautiful churches that, that, that welcome and provide spaces of hope and healing. And there are really destructive, damaging faith spaces. So how do you, and because I think you do this so well, how do you find that balance of calling the church to account for her misdeeds while not sensationalizing them? Um, and how do we also tell the full story of the good? Because sometimes that story might actually offer hope and healing for someone who's experienced the bad, if that makes sense. Yeah. You sound, I, I know you're not supposed to tell people what kind of Enneagram type they are, but this is this is I mean this is like a glowing compliment, which is that you sound like a very healthy Enneagram six. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> because I you know, I don't know as much about the I know a little bit, you know, like the floating between the three, the nine, and the six. Like I, yeah. I usually test as a, a three, which normally surprises people, but I well, think I am often moving towards that. <laughs> that the six. six is where threes go in health. And I know that because I am an Enneagram 3. <laughs> oh, we have so much in common. <laughs> um, but to get to your more important question. <laughs> no, no. Let's talk about my Enneagram type a little bit more. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> so I, it, my answer is in some sense a Christian cliche because it's just like quoting the Bible. And I don't want to do that in a way that's like, well, that's the answer. Let's move mm-hmm. on. But I'm thinking about the practice of speaking the truth in love, mm-hmm. which is when people inside the church are feeling defensive um, about critiques against the church, mm-hmm. uh, that can very easily lead to an evasion of truth or mm-hmm. an unwillingness to look at the full spectrum of the truth. 
And so I think some of this for people inside the church is asking for the humility and and the courage to face the truth about the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believing that when the truth is spoken and given to us in in any context we actually believe that the truth sets us free like mm. the truth is good news even if it's hard news yeah and i don't want to live in a christian community or subculture that puts its head in the sand mm. because the truth is too painful and i'm speaking in part as someone who you know loves journalism was very much formed in a journalistic context and thinking, you know, going back to the story of Willow Creek or Ravi Zacharias or Hillsong, like the only way that these huge, you know, international organizations ever came to face their own, um, well, Hillsong is <laughs> TBD, but <laughs> um, buffering, buffering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only way that these organizations actually get healthy and actually like have the poison sucked out of their, their system is to get the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. even if the diagnosis is really hard to hear. And I think that that is, that is just a principle that I want to live by believing, you know, in kind of a spiritual or providential way that, God wants us to be people who love truth, even when the truth mm-hmm. is about ourselves and even with it when it's hard, because how do any of us grow without facing our own stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's true for people and that's true for organizations and systems. Um, as to the question of sensationalism, I mean, I, you've already alluded to the internet and <laughs> it, it is perhaps the case that social media does not... Uh, foster in us the most nuance of thinking mm-hmm. or writing. And in that social media attention economy, we're all tempted to kind of say the thing in the most dramatic way mm. <laughs> to, yeah. to get people to engage. And if you are someone who has experienced pain or trauma or abuse in a church environment, well, you've probably been ignored or silenced mm-hmm. in some way. And so in the vacuum of being heard and listened to, it makes sense to me that you would be shouting to try to get people to mm-hmm. really believe what you are saying. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I also think that we, to some extent, are all tempted to, mm, to, to flatten things, to not account for the full truth because it doesn't fit are are hardened binary and i want us to all be people who are comfortable kind of sitting in the messy middle or the complexity Mm -hmm. or not having an answer right away Mm -hmm. just sitting Mm -hmm. in it and saying i don't know what this is about tell me more Mm, this isn't this is a new thought i'll have to think about this i'll have to sit with this yeah to talk with a friend about this yeah yeah and i you know it's it's true that the the good shepherds uh, rarely make headlines you know there's it, mm. it's um i think there is a a task and there's a role in telling the the good stories and maybe pointing people to the safe havens um that exist that can potentially be a space for healing so yeah i think the last things i kind of want to ask you about are just 
what is it that you think the church has to offer? You write about this a little bit in that sub stack, but, and, and I love how you talk about social capital from Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. And you talk about, you know, bridging organizations that bring different types of people together and bonding organizations that kind of reinforce some of the values and how the church can serve as both. So maybe yeah. summarize your sub stack a little bit for, for those that are listening. <laughs> and what, what is it that you find that that's healthy and healing uh, yeah. in the church? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have all like the theological answers in, in that Substack post, but when I actually sit back and think about what the things that I, I love so much about church and the actual experience of it, it is that I have four girlfriends, all, you know, we're all single women doing, doing our life in the city and we go to church and then there's this really cheap Mexican place around the <laughs> corner called Taqueria that is like, it's fine. It's B minus. Yeah. And we get their brunch special and talk and like sometimes we'll hang out afterwards. And that is that is our routine. That mm-hmm. is our ritual. That's just something yeah. that all of us can count on. Not even we haven't even planned it in that yeah. way. Like this is going to be a ritual. It's yeah. just the thing that we have done for the last couple of years. And having that kind of community like an Mm. actual just even just a a community you can count on every week I know I'm gonna see these people I know we'll talk about silly things I know we'll talk about serious Mm -hmm. things that has such a profound um like public health benefit it's Mm. not just it's it's not even that we're like praying together it is that being embedded in a local embodied community where people will notice if you don't show up. Like if I don't Mm -hmm. attend church for a few weeks or something, like I know that one of my friends will text and say like, Hey, how are you? Like what's, what's going on? Or have you been traveling? Whatever. Just having that place of belonging is so crucial right now. I think especially in the post pandemic era, or I don't know, maybe we're going through another cycle. I saw a disturbing headline about this a couple of days ago, but yeah, um, in a time where we have profoundly felt the effects of isolation and social disconnection, I really think you know the church should not be ashamed to just kind of offer that to people and and offer community, not just in a we say hi to each other on Sunday mornings, but where are places where people can actually be known deeply mm-hmm. and I think the church at its best as a healthy when it's when it's acting as a healthy institution is a place where people realize that if they were to be absent other people would know and would would care like where their presence matters in a in a deep abiding way yeah and part of that happens more effectively in kind of these these maybe smaller less production oriented churches i know there's there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter lately about like, is a church just somewhere you go to be entertained and, and consume a production? And I love how you write in your Substack that the, the future of the church might be in smallness and letting go of these expectations of what does it mean to be a blessed, successful, prosperous church? Is it, is it numbers? Is it big programs? Is it, you know, an, an entertaining service and a celebrity pastor, all those things that I think you're saying the future of the church is, is no, that's not working for us. We're seeing how that is failing. Yeah. And I think that's important. Well, on that note, I'll ask you my last question that I'm asking all my guests is as you've grown in your walk of faith, how has your perception of maybe 
prosperity or blessing or abundance changed? Yeah, I mean, you just alluded to this obsession that I think especially evangelicals in the last 30, 40 years um, have fostered around numerical growth. Like if, if we can chart the growth on an actual chart <laughs> and like count, you know, number of people baptized, number of new attendees, number of kids at Sunday school, I don't know, number of meals served, whatever. Like we, we think not only that we are succeeding, you know, that we are on the right track, but also that God is blessing us mm. kind of growth is about success is about numbers and numerical growth also means that God is blessing this. And I think these, these stories of huge organizations and mega churches where, yeah, they on paper, you know, you can, you can point to the papers and say, look, we can, we can chart the growth. And then you look internally just a little bit, you dig below the surface and you realize uh, deeply entrenched, unhealthy attitudes. What you're not seeing is the number of people who have left that particular mm. church because they have been deeply wounded in that church. Um, you're not seeing the the staff turnover. You're not seeing, even if there is numerical growth, that people are being formed in a, a, a shallow consumeristic expression of Christian mm. faith. So, um, yeah, I think we're all tempted to want to have tangible evidence that we're on the right track, that the work that we are doing is good and worthwhile and making a difference in the world. And so some of, you know, my, my call in my book is to um, come back to faithfulness as the goal, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> ordinary faithfulness as the goal, and to trust God with the outcomes, yeah. you know, to, to be, become people who are more concerned about the integrity of the process itself and and keeping first things first than outcomes that over time can really uh, justify the means, justify unhealthy or, or bad means. Mm. It's like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the Father who sees in secret and rewards mm. in secret that there's blessing in the smallness and the humility. There's actually a reward there. Caitlin, it's lovely to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for your insights and, and the wisdom that you, you lend to the church today. Thanks so much for having me. In her substack entitled, Why I Still Go to Church on Sundays, Caitlin shares a quote from Ross Daffel. He says, the church is a target because it asks to be a target because it aspires to set a higher standard, an answer to a higher master than princes, governments, and civic institutions. And my sister, Rachel Held Evans, writes in her book, Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church, Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create a sanctuary. She goes on to say, Sometimes I think the biggest challenge in talking about the church is telling ourselves the truth about it. Acknowledging the scars, staring down the ugly bits, 
marveling at its resiliency and believing that this flawed and magnificent body is enough for now to carry us through the world and into the arms of Christ. Thank you for joining us today. 